Amen. Well, I invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are in the book of Philippians chapter 3 today. Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi chapter 3. And today we're going to look together at verses 1 through 11. So if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's powerful, inspired Scripture. His word to us and for us. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, we do give you praise that you have opened your mouth and you have revealed yourself to us. You have spoken to us a true, authoritative, reliable, powerful, life-changing, mind-changing word. And we ask that you would watch over your word this morning to do for us what this word offers to us. That you would take the truth and write it upon our hearts and stamp it upon our lives and use it to conform us to be a little bit more like our Savior Jesus today so that we leave here more like Him, more hungry for Him, more on fire for you, different than when we came. Only you can do that. And we ask for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
<clears throat> so, we just concluded last week our short four-part series on the anatomy of discipleship, and we looked at two passages in Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and then chapter 2, 42 to the end of the chapter, verse 47. And we looked at the different body parts, as it were, the essential components of discipleship. And we talked about prayer, we talked about learning, fellowship, and worship. Prayer, learning, fellowship, and worship, those are the four essential parts of discipleship, and we saw that Acts is calling us to be devoted to these things, to be zealous for them, hungry for them, passionate about them, dedicated and committed to them, that we should be not just asking God to, to zap fry us into mature, flourishing, thriving, healthy, wonderful, mature Christians, which He certainly could do, but that's not typical. He doesn't normally work that way. He's given us the church. He's given us each other. He's given us the sacraments. He's given us worship. He's given us prayer, learning, fellowship, and worship, all these pieces of discipleship, so that by devoting ourselves to them, these ordinary means of grace, as we consistently and routinely use them diligently as God has given them to us, we are to be progressively, slowly, little by little, across our whole Christian life, changing, growing, growing in Christ. Not just crying out for revival, Lord, zap us from the sky, but laboring for reformation in ourselves so that the two come together. We're to be devoted to these things, and we've seen that this is how we are to grow as disciples. And our definition of discipleship we used throughout that series was... Discipleship is the disciplined process of growing in Christian maturity. We want to be well-rounded, well-balanced, put together, flourishing, thriving, growing, healthy disciples, Christians. And that's what Christian maturity is about. Now, this morning, this is the beginning of a sequel to that previous series. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Philippians chapter 3. And it's in three parts. We're going to break it down into three sermons. So it's just the rest of February. And what I want to do in this series is to make the point that all that stuff we just studied in the last four weeks, where I really emphasized us being engaged, us getting involved, us getting up, doing something, giving the Holy Spirit something to work with, getting ourselves out there. We want to make sure we keep that balanced because the temptation will be, well, I've got to go do it. I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I've got to put myself together and I've got to work this out and I've got to grow because God tells me to and I can make myself a mature Christian if I'll just do these things. I can do it. <laughs> That's the temptation of the whole Christian life. That, yeah, God saved me back then, but now it's up to me. And yep, I'm going to heaven by grace, but everything else is effort from me. Effort is required, but effort from us is not decisive. What we're going to do in this series is watch Paul in Philippians 3 tell us about the way to pursue our discipleship. 
We must pursue discipleship by living in and living from the gospel. We must be grounded in the gospel of grace. So this series is called, and it's at the top of your sermon insert, uh, that's the title of the whole series you've got there on your, on your notes, Discipleship by Faith. Discipleship by faith. We're going to plug our series on discipleship that we just did, and we're going to plug it into the gospel realities of justification, sanctification, and glorification. The three big stages of the Christian life. Justification, where we get saved and are right with God. Sanctification, the Christian life. And then finally, glorification, where we persevere to the end and we make it to our inheritance, our heavenly inheritance, and we're finally glorified in Christ's presence. That's the big map of the Christian life. We're going to map discipleship onto that three-part Christian life. This morning, we look at Philippians 3, 1 to 11, and we consider the relationship between justification and discipleship. So let's begin. Let's look first at the first six verses of Philippians 3. Fallen human nature, fallen human nature, is hardwired to believe that we can save ourselves by our works. No matter what we, no matter how we answer that question on the theological quiz or how many times we get asked in Sunday school, are you saved by works? No, of course not. No matter how many times we say the right answer, down in our hearts, down deep in the bottom of fallen human nature, we really do, way down there somewhere, believe that this is at least a little bit up to me. That I have something to contribute that's essential to my own salvation. Even as Christians, our flesh loves to convince us that our works are the basis of our relationship with God. So that when we're having good days, God's having a good day with us. <laughs> and when I have a bad day, God's having a real bad day with us. And that not just whether He's pleased or not, but how He fundamentally feels about us. <laughs> Right? The fundamental basis of our whole relationship depends upon my performance from day to day. So that it almost feels like he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I had a good day, he's really loving me today. Bad day, yep, I'm basically on my way to hell again. And, and we just do this. And, we'll, and our flesh wants us to think that's true so that we'll get into that rut that anti-gospel trap that the enemy wants you to stay in and your whole discipleship and your whole Christian life will just grind to a halt in that ditch and you won't be able to get yourself out. If you think that your relationship at its fundamental base level has your works as a factor in how God feels about you or in whether or not you're right with God. Our flesh wants us to believe that lie. And the enemy knows how to just tug at the strings of our hearts and just press the right buttons of our flesh to get us to believe those things. Even if in our minds we know it's not true, somehow down deep we feel like maybe it is. The core 
of our sinfulness is pride and entitlement. If you want to boil down what's, what the sinful condition is, at the very bottom, we are prideful and we are entitled. Even as Christians, this isn't just unbelievers, even as Christians, we are prone to imagine that God is secretly very impressed with our obedience and good deeds. And now he owes us one. And you hear this sometimes. I've heard it before where someone says, well, I'm, I'm, here I am trying to serve God and go to church and raise my kids the right way and be a good Christian and I tithe most of the time and I read my Bible every now and then, but you know, I, things are busy, but I'm really trying and God knows my heart and I'm being sincere. So why did this bad thing happen to my child? And it's like, well, what do you think your obedience is? Well, it's entitlement. I'm being a good Christian, so God, you owe me. You can't let my kid get in trouble. Where's my blessing, God, for all my good works, for all my effort? The flesh is so subtle and so tricky, because that is a fundamentally anti-gospel thing to think. We really do think, deep down, Maybe God owes us one for how good we try. This is called self-righteousness. It's called putting confidence in the flesh instead of confidence in free grace. And Paul understands this acute problem, this insidious danger. We all face, we all face the temptation of trusting in ourselves in, in our own performance to be righteous before God. That's what Paul addresses here at the beginning of Philippians 3, 1 to 6. So let's look at these verses together. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. To write the same things to you. This, this is a subtle implication that Paul hasn't just written one letter to Philippi. He's had some correspondence with Philippi back and forth. The, the letter that God wanted us to have in our Bibles is the one we have in our Bibles. But Paul wrote other letters. And he says, look, I know that I'm about to repeat myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm about to write to you the same old thing that I always keep telling you guys, but it's really no trouble to me, <laughs> right? I don't feel bad repeating myself. It, didn't, it doesn't waste my time. And it's also safe for you. It's safer for me to bore you with, Paul, we've heard that already. Could you Go to something more interesting. Go to the next verse. Give us something else. You just keep repeating this stuff. No, 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 no. It's safe. It's safer for me to repeat myself on these points. You know, Second Peter uh, chapter 1, Peter does the same thing. Uh, in Second Peter 1.12, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, his death. I'm going to die soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's why Peter keeps repeating himself. That's why Paul keeps repeating himself. Because this is an important point. 
that needs to be constantly drilled into us because we just have that old flesh that clings to us every day. And so that flesh needs to get shot with some gospel truth every single day. It's for our safety that Paul harps on these things. Verses 2 and 3. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who's he talking about? Who are these dogs? Who are these evildoers? Paul's being very rude to somebody here. He's not talking about actual, you know, four-legged critters that are running around Philippi. Watch out for the Doberman on 5th Street. He's, he's talking about people, right? He's talking about other human beings. They're dogs, they're evildoers, they're flesh mutilators. It's very rude of Paul, right? No, he's very serious because there's a real threat. Who are these people? These are Judaizing Christians preaching a false gospel. These are people who think that you don't just need Jesus. There's something else you got to do that involves your flesh, that involves your body, that involves your actions. You've got to get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's what he's referring to. So there were early Christians, and you can read about this debate they had in Acts chapter 15. These early Christians who said, no, 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 wait. To be a, for a Gentile to become a Christian, he's got to convert to Judaism first. If he's a male, he's got to get circumcised. And he's got to keep the law of Moses. To be a good Christian, you've got to be a good Jew first. And the, the, the tension, the debate, the ferocity of this true gospel, false gospel combat that was taking place throughout Paul's ministry, it got pretty bitter. Paul says, those people are dogs. Those are evildoers who tell you that. Because they're telling you something they think is going to save you, that's going to damn you. Do not listen to them. He calls them flesh mutilators, which is a really you know, derogatory way to talk about circumcision. It's like, you Gentiles and Philippi's all Gentiles, you guys don't need to do that to be Christians, to be saved. These are Judaizing Christians who preach a false gospel. And then he says in verse 3 that we are the true people of God, the circumcision. We are the real people of God who do these three things in verse 3. We worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we do not put confidence in the flesh. The opponents of Paul were doing the opposite of these three things. They weren't worshiping by the Spirit. They weren't boasting in Christ alone. They weren't putting no confidence in the flesh. They're doing the opposite. And Paul says, that's not what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to worship by the Spirit. Jesus said the Father is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what we do, Paul said. The real people of God do that. We glory, we boast, we exult in Christ. He's our only boast, not ourselves. And we put no confidence in ourselves or what we do. And this must be the focus of our own discipleship as Christians today. Our devotion, our obedience must never contradict these three essential attributes of a Christian. So that all of my effort and all of my striving and sacrificing self and time and agenda 
and putting other people first and trying to be in a home group or trying to go and serve my fellow Christians here, devoting myself to prayer and learning and fellowshipping with the body and, and worshiping God. We can't pursue that in a way that contradicts these three things. We worship not in our own strength or in our own spirit, but in the spirit of God. We do not boast in how good of a disciple we're being. But we boast only in Christ who died for us and is raised for us, enthroned for us, intercedes for us, will not let us go, is coming back for us. That's our only boast, not in puny old me. And we don't put confidence in our own discipleship. We don't put confidence in ourselves. Then verses 4 to 6, Paul moves on. In this section, Paul gives his own resume of righteousness. Paul gives us in these verses his impeccable credentials for boastful confidence in the flesh. He says, look, if anybody has reason to be proud and boastful, it's me. Let me tell you why. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got even more. I'm, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law of Moses says. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm a real Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I got Hebrew parents. They're both Hebrews. I'm Jewish to the bone. As to the law, a Pharisee, the strictest sect of law keepers in Judaism. Pharisees were the most strict and scrupulous observers of the law. Paul says, that was me. As to zeal, you want to know how zealous I was for this stuff? I persecuted God's church. I put people in jail. Zeal was something Paul did with a knife. Paul was serious about defending the traditions of his fathers. As to zeal, I went all the way to persecuting other people for not being in line with this stuff. You think you're zealous, I'm more zealous. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Nobody could come to me and say, now Paul, there's this little section of the law that you're really, really slacking on. You really dropped the ball on law 556. And he says, oh no, I'm not. You can't convict me of being slack on any of them. All 613, I am on top of it blameless, faultless, nobody could criticize me for being, for being a bad follower of the law. This is, I mean, it's just amazing. The resume, if anybody could boast, surely Paul could. And we do stuff like this, right? We don't say circumcised on the eighth day. We don't say all this stuff. We say, you know, baptized as an infant of the people of Presbyterians. Of the tribe of the EPC, a Presbyterian of Presbyterians, charter member. Well, not of this church. <laughs> As to, you know, Bible reading and prayer, every day. Church attendance, every time the door is open. Serve on a committee, you bet. Tithe, every chance I get. I wish we'd take up two offerings. As to zeal, I'm the most dedicated Christian of this church. And it's very subtly we think, yeah, those, those Jews in Paul's day, they just had a problem. We don't have that problem. Yes, we do. Oh, yes, we do. We cannot put confidence in the flesh. 
And in verse 7, Paul rejects that whole resume that he spent his whole life from the day, from that eighth day of his life when he was circumcised as, a, as an infant all the way up to the day he met Jesus. He said, everything I did, all of that effort and law-keeping, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ in verse 7. And that takes us to the second point this morning. We cannot put confidence in the flesh. Instead, point two, we must see ourselves as righteous in Christ. Verses seven through nine. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Compared to Jesus, Paul says, compared to Jesus, all our best deeds, our most impressive spiritual and moral and religious credentials are less than nothing. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, verse 8, as loss because of the surpassing worth, the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When we compare ourselves to one another, we might come off looking pretty good. Right? I'm better than that sinner. Yeah, I'm still a sinner, but not as bad as that one. My attendance is better. My consistency is better. I'm more spiritual. And we go down the list. We might come off looking pretty good if we compare our sinful selves by worse sinners than ourselves. But if we measure ourselves by God's perfect standard, which is Jesus, we lose all rights for boasting and all grounds for confidence in our flesh. We must repent of our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness. And sometimes the second one is harder to repent of. Sometimes self-righteousness is actually the deeper, harder one to let go of. This is what Paul did when he came to know Jesus. He gave up his unrighteousness, whatever little bit he had, and he gave up all that big mountain of self-righteousness. It was husks and ashes at that point. Verses 7 and 8, Paul uses this metaphor of credits and debits on a financial ledger. Whatever gain I had, credit, I counted as loss, a debit. He's looking at things in terms of gains and losses and in terms of overall value. All that other stuff I did, I counted as loss for the surpassing value or worth of just knowing Jesus. This is what he's doing in verses 7 and 8. He takes the whole list of things he used to boast about and put confidence in. Those things he used to live for and value so highly that he was so zealous he would persecute people over it. He took all that and he compares their true worth to the worth of just knowing Jesus. Knowing him and having him and being had by him. And he says, all is loss. Christ is all. If you take everything Paul said on his resume and put it on one side of the scale and you put Christ, he says, Jesus' side goes down instantly. Because all my goodness, all my confidence, all my resume, it's lighter than, it's lighter than dust on the scale. And you put the infinite worth and value of Christ and there is no comparison. Everything else is just husks and ashes. He says it's rubbish, which is another rude word in Greek. It's a very rude word in Greek. 
We might even think it's off color if we knew Greek. He says it's, it belongs in the septic tank is what he's saying. That's where it goes. I'm flushing all that old stuff I used to brag about and boast in. That's about what it's worth now. Christ is everything. And he says in verse, in verse uh, 8, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And that's so crucial. He says, you have to count all this other stuff as rubbish before you can get Jesus. You cannot hold them both. If you want Christ, something's got to go. You've got to relinquish that resume of credentials. You've got to relinquish all the deeds of your flesh. You can't say, but God, look at these shiny good deeds. And I get Jesus. No, you have to drop the one in order to have Jesus. Jesus will not have a competitor. Right? It's like, it's like a, a spouse who says, No, you can't have somebody on the side in our marriage. You don't get to divide your loyalty and affection that way. You don't get to split the time between us. It's all me or none of me. And you get to decide. That's what's happening here. This is what repentance is all about. This is what no confidence in the flesh feels like on the inside. All that stuff's rubbish. Well, you really think that. You really feel that down in your heart. And Christ is everything. When you really come to feel that, and, and the weight of it and the reality of it sinks down deep on the inside, that's what repentance is. Where from the bottom of the heart, you change what you value most. And now it's not this world. And it's not me. It's not what I see in the mirror. It's not what I've done or said or what I'm capable of or my good intentions. It's just Jesus. And he's everything. That's what repentance looks and feels like. Giving up the one to have Christ. And Paul says that trade is gain. To give up everything to have him, he says that's gain. That's not loss. That's not really loss. Because I get an infinite treasure in exchange for the trinkets of this world. That brings us to verse 9. Now we get to justification. He says in verse 9, And be found in Him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I was blameless under the law when I was doing my own thing. But really, what I think of as blameless is complete sinful rubbish. What I need is a real righteousness. Not a 98% righteousness, not a, not a good enough righteousness but a perfect righteousness. And that only comes from God, and it only comes in Christ, and it only comes by grace, and I only get it by faith. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ Himself and His righteousness is worth more than anything our flesh can produce. And so we must pursue our discipleship as justified sinners justified sinners. 
we need to realize that we and ourselves are still sinners. We still fall, fail, struggle, blow it, you name it. And we will do that in our discipleship. We will sometimes feel like we're taking three or four steps back and then I'm having a good week or a month and I feel like I've inched forward a little bit and then I'll just make a dumb decision. I'll get out of the Word. I'll stop praying. And then I'm just swept away and I feel like I've got to start all of discipleship. It'll ebb and flow. But in those times, you have to remember, that's not that ebb and flow, the back and forth, doing good, doing bad, doing good, doing bad. That's not what your relationship with God's based on. It's based solely on the infinite worth of Christ. So that when you're in Christ, you're united to Him, God can't look at you and not see Jesus. He can't see you outside of Christ if you have faith in Him and you're united to Him. All He sees is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. His blood and righteousness that fully atones for all of your sin. And that makes all of your good deeds, all of your discipleship acceptable in His sight. Because everything we do is always going to be tainted with some kind of imperfection. But Christ is there at the right hand of the Father interceding for us so that He absolves all of that imperfection. And God accepts us as righteous in His sight and He's pleased with what we do in His service. We are justified sinners. We pursue discipleship from the gospel, always from the gospel, only from the gospel of free grace, of justification by faith alone in our perfect Savior, Christ alone. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is a gift. It's not this decision you crank out and this thing that you just have to work up and do. It's a gift. Being His disciple is grace. All your good deeds start out as His grace. That's why we can't take credit for them. It's grace first, and that grace falls on us, and it comes out as our obedience. And that's why we get zero credit, and He gets all the glory. Discipleship is a gift of His grace. and We become His disciples by faith alone, and we live as His followers by faith. That takes us to our last point this morning. Verses 10 and 11. Once we have become disciples by grace, and once we've been justified by faith, we then pursue our discipleship by that same grace and by that same faith. Look at verses 10 and 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We are justified and saved in union with Christ. And we must live as disciples from that union. Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. We have to abide in Him, abide in His love, abide in His grace and power and cling to His Spirit, and put no confidence in ourselves. And then from that frame of mind, we then give our all in His service. That's why Jesus said, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My burden is easy. His yoke, which is the thing you put on the, the oxen to pull the plow 
He says, when you put my yoke on you, when you get strapped into my service, it's not a burden. It's not soul crushing. It's not doesn't kill you. It doesn't grind you to powder. It doesn't exhaust you. It's easy and it's light. It's going to be a joy to live for me because you're not going it alone. But God works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. We live from His grace. We live out of union with Christ. As verse 10 says, this is what our discipleship looks like as we lean into our union with Christ and live from the gospel. We're growing in our knowledge of Him, verse 10, that I may know Him. That's step one. We're growing to know Christ more deeply and more truly. And the power of His resurrection. We want to know His power. And this is what we pray for. Give me that new resurrection life down in my very bones, down in my soul, so that my deadness dies away and I come to new life in my relationship with Christ and in my discipleship. Kill that remaining deadness and bring new life so that I can live in the power of His resurrection. That's what we pray for. Third, he says, we suffer that we may share His sufferings. We want to know Him. We want to know His resurrection power. We want to suffer with Him, not against Him. So when we go through the trials and storms of life, we don't blame God and accuse Him and get bitter and pull away, but we suffer with Jesus, like Jesus, not against Him. And fourth, he says, becoming like Him in His death. We want to know Jesus. We want to know His power active in our lives. We want to suffer with Him. And one day we want to die like Him. We want to, through our lives, steadily become more and more like Him, even unto death, so that we have a death like His. Dying in faithfulness, persevering to the end, making it to our heavenly inheritance. Paul ends this section by saying in verse 11, I do these things so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul was living for that resurrection day at all cost. He had Jesus' face in his view. He had eternity in his mind. He had heaven in his sights. He had the resurrection in his expectation. He was living for that resurrection day at all cost, persevering to the end. That's the mindset that we have to bring to our discipleship. We have to live as disciples, be devoted to these things, pursue these things out of this gospel reality. Our discipleship must begin and end with the gospel. Discipleship is a gift received by grace, and lived by faith. So let us be the disciples of Christ. And let us not put any confidence in our flesh. Receive your discipleship, Christian, as a gift. Lean upon the Holy Spirit. Lean into your union with Christ. And then let's go together with all we have and belong to Him serve Him, 
feel his power working in each one of us. Receive it by grace. Give him thanks and live it by faith. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us your grace, that you would help us overcome the temptations of our flesh to put confidence in ourselves, that nagging little voice that creeps up on us, that tempts us to put confidence in ourselves, to feel self-righteous, to be a little bit proud, to think we've earned a little something, to feel entitled from time to time. Lord, we ask that you would cut the root of that lie, that you would silence the enemy from whispering those tricks and schemes into our ear, that you would make us sensitive to that kind of evil temptation from the evil one, and that you would give us power, resurrection power, the same glorious might that raised up your son from the grave, never to die again, and seated him in glory and power. I pray that you would work that strength, that same unchanging, almighty power down in us so that we begin to be new creatures. Not just do some different things on the surface, but to really be new all the way down. That we would lean into your grace, that we would cling to the gospel, that we would see ourselves as righteous, justified, fully accepted, only in Jesus, always only in Him. And that from that position of perfect acceptance with you, perfect righteousness before your holy law, putting no confidence in ourselves, we would begin to live and move in you to pursue a life of discipleship, to be the body of Christ you've called us to be, to grow in our Christian maturity, to grow up in our knowledge of Christ, to set our sights on eternity, to not live for this world, to crucify the flesh, to run after Jesus. Give us that heart. And may all of us individually and in our families, may you knit our hearts together as one body here at the Forks, so that shoulder to shoulder and side by side, as one body with one soul and one heart and one mind, we would run after you and we would do all you've called us to do and we would be all you've called us to be. Show us the unending joy, the unspeakable joy we will find when we live the life you've called us to live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.